Midway through 1997, I came home and said to Sue, well, that's it, it's all over. We've lost our money. But she said to me, you've got to understand what God's birth, and he did birth this, what his birth is going to make happen. So the next day I was out walking in the morning early, as I used to do, walk around the streets, praying, and I said to God, if you've got a miracle, today is a very good day. From Lux Mundi, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Wong, and on today's show, Peter Irvine shares what it was like to go from working at an ad agency at 14 years old to becoming a cafe entrepreneur in his late 40s. Then Peter opens up about praying through difficult moments after opening up the first doors and what they had to do to make the Gloria Jeans concept work in Australia to when they sold the business so that Peter could focus on what he's doing today. Now at 71 years old, Peter is still passionate to speak into the lives of people who care about faith and business. Just a thought before I get into Peter's story. What does it mean to have vision? The vision that Helen Keller, who was both deaf and blind, spoke about when she said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. That's a pretty powerful statement coming from someone who later became an author, political activist, and lecturer. Helen Keller wasn't handicapped by her circumstances when she set her mind on not what she couldn't do, but what she wanted to do, which was to make an impact on others. And just how important is having vision? Having vision can help us stay focused because people like you and me going about our daily lives at work or at home We can often get distracted doing all the little things in front of us and maybe not accomplish much towards a bigger dream. I really got thinking about vision after talking to Peter. He's one of the two guys who successfully brought the U.S. coffee brand Gloria Jeans to Australia and turned it into the global brand it is today. But what I found interesting about him is that he didn't grow up in an environment that would encourage him to think big. He grew up in the outskirts of Sydney, Australia, right after World War II. When I was growing up, people didn't talk about things like vision and mission and values because it wasn't even thought of at that time. But most people would work to earn money uh, to get by and pay bills. What type of things did your dad tell you or instill in you? He wasn't a big speaker in that sort of stuff. He wasn't highly educated because they were in big families, so they all, in their early teenagers, and all started work. What kind of work did your dad do? In his early years, he worked as a uh, tree logging in the mountains, and then eventually uh, he worked for a big manufacturing company as a foreman, and then eventually worked for himself in his own uh, small truck to deliver products for Timberyard and other hardware stores. So that probably made you really think you had to kind of pay the bills mentality. Oh, yeah. Well, they just assumed you're going to work. (laughs) It wasn't a high expectation. It wasn't like stay at school and and go higher in education. And I just uh, eventually at age 14 got a job as a junior in an advertising agency. Do you earn money for your family or just for yourself? Well, keep in mind, uh, back in 1963, it was a very small income, so 
a third of that income would go as board toward your parents, towards food and all that, that type of thing. Another third of that was for transport from where we lived into where I had to work, a weekly ticket, and then you had a third of it to, uh, to do something with on yourself. So at 14 years old, you were already contributing to your room and board. We're paying just a small amount towards our parents because they had costs to look after four of us. Peter says most people from his town in Australia didn't continue with their education in the 1960s because families couldn't afford paying for education. So Peter got a certificate for finishing year nine, which is equivalent to the eighth grade in the U.S. Then he got a job working at DDB Nehem, one of the largest advertising agencies in the world. But after working there for a few years, Peter had a desire to upskill, and he asked around how he could do it. Someone suggested I should do the advertising certificate course at the college. It was a huge number of people started, and I think eight finished the four years. It was a course that was slow and tedious, and probably within 18 months, I was already learning more working in the advertising agency than doing the course. But I'd always learned to stick it out. That was the only certificate. I ever got. I really learned it all by working and uh, learning and watching, observing and working with good people who probably had the education and I learned a lot from. But a lot of mine started to come from seeing God at work through the Bible and ideas. And Can you describe a moment when your faith became real? There are two times I, I reckon in my life I took a leap forward. One was when I was 16 or 17. After a Sunday night church service, the message really challenged me about uh, not having a faith based on other people or just because you went to church. And it started to a realisation that it's actually a personal involvement from me, my relationship with God. And then in about 36 years old, I had a realisation that a sense God was impressing on me that your Bible's too small. And I'm going, why? my mind and then I realized that I was mentally wiping out verses and chapters and books that people had told me don't apply today like uh, Jethro uh, Moses father telling him about delegation unless you delegate you're going to kill yourself and how you go about doing it well that's a story in the Bible it's those things that really have an impact Peter says even though he was raised in a Christian family his faith grew when he applied biblical principles to his life at work especially when he became national media director at the ad agency in his mid-30s. In this role, he saw how he couldn't do it all by himself when he became responsible for planning where advertising money would be spent, for negotiating, buying, and scheduling all the media across the country. He broke delegation into some practical steps. There really are four simple columns on a piece of paper. And one was, what's the job? Uh, secondly, what's the detail of that job? And the third thing is, who's going to do it? And when you actually put names against it, your name doesn't have to be against everything. And I learned that, that my name couldn't be against everything because there was too many items and jobs needed doing. But I could put other people against that. And even if they only half did the job, it would be halfway on the journey. Peter says he got the opportunity to grow within his firm as people saw he could do it. By his mid-40s, he became their general manager to manage day-to-day -day issues for 200 people across four floors. And he also got to handle the major McDonald's account. Peter was happy where he was, so it came as a surprise when he was asked to take a senior role at DDB Nehem. He's got back from holidays, and the chairman 
called me in and said, uh, the managing director is moving to America to run the Dallas-Fort Worth office. And all the working directors, they all want you to be managing director. And I said, well, I don't think so. (laughs) I never saw that. I didn't want to do that. It may sound strange, but it wasn't something that I pushed for and expected. I was happy to do my job. Mm -hmm. But your colleagues believed in you. Well, they did. I I don't know whether they saw me as a soft target. (laughs) But I said to the chairman, no, I don't think so. And then he pushed it. And I said, well, I've got to go home and pray about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, He didn't understand what I was talking about. So I got home and I said to Sue, Mm -hmm. uh, I've been offered this position, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, you should take it. I said, well, I don't want to. And she encouraged me. What made you say yes? Oh, you get paid more. (laughs) (laughs) Two reasons probably why I, I did take it. One was her encouragement to do it. The second reason, Peter said, had to do with a recent change in his life. He and his wife, Sue, had moved to a church called Hillsong, which is a megachurch in Australia, which did its worship and preaching a bit differently from the church Peter grew up in. Peter says what he saw at Hillsong was that they had a far greater vision in dealing with issues to becoming a large church. For example, they used to rent a major entertainment centre and there were sometimes during the year uh, that was not available and they got very creative in where they would meet on those particular Sundays. And it sort of opened my mind to say if a church can think visionary to solve problems, why can't we do that in business? So I guess growing to be managing director was actually growing to another level. And so what was it like when you took on that role? I could tell you, fear could have set in really quickly and pull the covers over and say, I'm not getting out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not going. (laughs) So I got out of bed, showered, and on the way driving to work, I said, we're going to set a vision, whatever that means. I got the key people together and I said, we're going away for two days with a external moderator which we used with McDonald's in workshops. I said, for two days, and we're going away to work out what our vision and what are the issues that we have Mm -hmm. that we need to resolve as a business. And it's interesting, out of that workshop, we came up with a vision that really impacted me. Do you remember what vision it was? We came up with to be the best, not the biggest, the best advertising agency this country has seen. But that wasn't it. There was a key part to it that was important. Mm -hmm. To be the best advertising agency this country has seen, dash, okay is not okay. Mm. And that was probably the key part because when, when our creative people after that time came and presented a concept for a client, we reviewed it and we said, well, that's pretty okay. We better present it. And I said, no, remember we said okay is not okay. So we sent them away to redo it. And they came up with a phenomenal idea that the client loved and made him highly successful. And what was it like being on the McDonald's account? In one way, I enjoyed it because I like retail. I like things that if you promoted a product and you know it worked or it didn't work, it actually upskilled me in dealing with knowledgeable but difficult people in marketing and business sense. Mm -hmm. And I started to learn a lot about franchising. Whether it was McDonald's or another franchise, Peter says he started to see the same complaints from franchisees. Those are people using the McDonald's brand and running the actual stores you walk into. If a previous program hadn't worked, they would be very angry and upset. Um, Mm -hmm. 
whether it was your fault or not, um, they often had issues with the company, not with us, but we were the soft target to take those issues out on. Mm. So you started to develop a very thick skin in dealing with people and how to manage them. And often they would knock back or not approve a, prom- a marketing promotion coming up because they didn't like what the company had done. Yeah. Um, so we had to go back again the next month and work out how we resold that program to get it approved because there was nothing wrong with the program. <laughs> Peter was exposed to how retail franchises worked and how to bridge the disconnect between the big corporation and the franchisees who'd from time to time not see eye to eye on how promotions and marketing spend should be used. It was a challenge Peter loved and was good at. And little did he know that it would make sense when his friend Nabi Saleh, a small group leader from church, would present him with an opportunity that would change his career. He was already in coffee and tea. He was bringing coffee and tea into the country for uh, restaurants and hotels and for supermarkets. And he said to us, would you like to do something different? And I said to him, what do you got in mind? He said, I've been offered this concept called Gloria Jeans. And I said, look, I don't know a lot about fashion. (laughs) He said, no, it's not jeans, it's coffee. (laughs) So he showed us the color brochure. And as you know, color brochures don't always say a lot. So I said, let's go to America and let's have a look. After over 30 years at the same advertising agency, Peter saw the opportunity to change his career and essentially lead the company he was with since he was 14 years old. But Peter was going into this with a partner who had experience in the coffee industry and someone he trusted. We'll take a break and when we're back, we'll hear how Peter and his partner Nabi Saleh went off to the US and what agreement they came back with. So I wanted to take this break to talk about Jeremy Lin, because his career and faith have had its highs and lows. Last season, Jeremy Lin was the first Asian American to win an NBA title, but he didn't get much playing time during the playoffs. And that win wasn't necessarily a win for his career. So free agency has been tough, because I feel like in some ways the NBA has kind of given up on me. His words went viral over the internet. Unfortunately, not many people know why he said what he said. Jeremy Lin was speaking at a Taiwanese Christian TV station called Good TV. He didn't just tear up to speak about the terrible career trajectory he's had since Lin's sanity, but actually how he's dealt with his faith in the midst of it all. And my biggest question goes to God. Why would you give me all this? Why would you give me everything just to leave me out to dry? Many times, people talk about their failures after they've seen their successes. But Jeremy's talk was for the purpose that went beyond his circumstance. Because I come here before you with a very broken heart. And I know that I might never be the player that I thought I could be. Actually, if you're looking at it, odds are I won't. But I know that I still have freedom. And that's what I'm here to tell you today. Jeremy told the crowd, don't give up, don't give in, and don't lose hope. If you want to hear his full speech, check out Good TV or go to our Faith Collides website to get the link to the video. I really hope that your faith will be encouraged if you too feel you've reached a dead end in your career. Welcome back. Peter's about to share what happened when he and Nabi flew to the U.S. to visit Gloria Jeans. So we went over and looked at their three best stores. 
And then they took us to the East Coast to meet in their head office and asked, would you like to buy the rights for Australia? And I'm still jet lagged and said, what do you got in mind? And they said, we want you to open 75 stores in a 10-year term. I couldn't see how we could open 75 coffee, tea, gift stores, because that's what they were back then in America. And so they said, how many do you think you can do? So I said, you have to leave the room because we have to work it out and talk about it. So they left the room and I worked out that there were probably only in Australia 25 large shopping centres. And I said to my partner, I said, look, this is a gift store. It has to be in big centres. It's never going to work otherwise. And so we agreed it was 25. So they came back in and we said 25 and they didn't like it. And we argued for hours, but eventually they agreed because their international expansion wasn't exactly rushing away on them. Just to give a bit of perspective here, while Australia may look like a big country on the map since its landmass is almost the same size as the United States, Australia's population had only about 18 million Aussies when the agreement was signed in 1995. This number barely reaches those living inside the state of New York today. So opening 25 stores within 10 years made sense. But even still, it was very difficult for Peter and Nabi to sell enough coffees that would help them break even in the first couple years. So we came back and eventually we opened the first store in November 1996. Do you remember what it was like opening up the first store? I stayed at home and laid on the lounge and said to my wife, well, we got one open. I don't think I could ever do this again. It nearly killed me. (laughs) Why is that? Well, it's just so many things you had to learn and do and pull together. There were people who didn't want to help us because they thought we were idiots and this concept would never work. There was a steep learning curve for Peter. And by 1997, they had opened up two stores. Well, there was a lot of enthusiasm from customers and people coming in, but we weren't getting the volume turnover mm-hmm. in both stores that were ever going to succeed. So midway through 1997, I came home and said to Sue, well, that's it, it's all over. We've lost our money. But she said to me, you've got to understand what God's birth, and he did birth this, what he's birthed is going to make happen. So the next day I was out walking in the morning early, as I used to do, walk around the street uh, praying. And I said to God, if you've got a miracle, today's a very good day. <laughs> right. So when you wanted to give up, were, were you aligned with your business partner on that? Uh, he couldn't see how we could get any more money. And I couldn't either because we put everything in it um, to be able to keep it going. He said, got to give it up. and We have to. But again, we said, well, God's birthed this. So do we need to make some changes? Because we were still a bit of a hybrid of a coffee, tea, gift store and takeaway coffee new to Australia. What was that like having a partner who was someone you knew from church or someone you could pray with? It can be good and sometimes it can be bad. What we committed to when we started, that we would meet once a month on a Saturday morning, not to talk about the small bits and pieces about business, but to talk through what are the key issues, where we're going with this, are there any things we really disagree on between each other, let's deal with it. And we spent time praying for the business, for the people in the business, for ourselves, for our families, and for things happening at church and maybe other key issues. 
and that was probably pretty crucial. Why was that? Yeah, well, I mean, we were totally two different people, but it didn't matter if we were the same type of people. It's important that you deal with issues because issues will brew between in the business or between yourselves, so you have to get them out on the table and talk about them and pray them through. There are issues coming up that when you're running a business, you're both running all the time, and if you don't deal with them, they can become major problems, but if you can deal with them early, you can actually come up with solutions or or change directions on something. Here was their problem in a nutshell. The two original Gloria Jeans coffee shops had an emphasis on buying gifts and selling specialty coffee beans. Peter says if you walked into their original store, you would have seen how 25% of the business was selling whole coffee beans with over 50 varieties and blends of coffees from different countries. You could scoop them from the bins, weigh them on a scale to take home. Then the other 50% were from selling china, crockery, teapots, and all the paraphernalia items for making tea and coffee and hot chocolates. And the remaining 25% were for drinks and pastries. The problem was the margins were better in the drinks and therefore it made for a very tough environment on their model to actually make money year-round. And that's why we focused on the espresso, hot and cold drinks and the food pastry cabinet because we generated about 70% of our sales in that versus the 25% of America and it was more profitable. So Peter and his partner had to slightly change the emphasis on the original store concept so that the primary focus, which he called the hero in the store, would be different. So when we started in Australia, we copied that concept, except we made the espresso drinks and a pastry cabinet more of a hero, which the Americans didn't do. And it was only that slight difference actually gave us traction to grow because the coffee tea gift store principle is very limited because once you sell a teapot to someone, they're not necessarily want to buy another one. In order to accommodate selling more pastries and drinks, Peter had to look at the seating arrangements because the seating from the original store concept was very limited. The Americans either had no seating uh, in their stores or if they did, it was, you know, like two or three stools or chairs. Mm. We we started with a few uh, tables and chairs and saying a few was probably four or five. Mm. But we learned over the years the Australian market loves to sit. Mm-hmm. And so we built, we remodeled stores to take out some of the merchandise shelves and created more tables and chairs, even benches with stools. So we could sit 30 or 40 people. So that probably impacted the way you looked at cafes. You probably needed a little more real estate for seating. Yes, we, we became creative because... The more real estate you take, the more expensive it is for the lease. Um, mm. And and we started to introduce what we call kiosks. And generally at that time, kiosks didn't have any seating. So we would negotiate an area that could create seating next to the kiosk because we saw mm. it as an essential part of our business to have seating. On top of that, Peter realized there was a need to shift the mindset of Australians on how to drink coffee. Now, when you go to Australia today, you'll see many people getting and drinking coffee on the go. 
But in the 1990s, that wasn't the case. Because it was a cultural thing in Australia that you don't walk around eating or drinking. You always sat down. So McDonald's had broken that culture with the cold drinks. We come and and people were used to sitting down and having coffee or tea in a crockery or china cup and table service. We had none of that. So we basically broke the mindset. Peter says what happened wasn't necessarily a miracle, but things started to happen to turn the situation around. One of them was making the decision to change Gloria Jeans to be about takeaway specialty coffees and changing the store layout to boost sales. The other was allowing people to buy into the business as store franchisees. These were the people who started to see potential in what they were doing, including a guy who was adamant to join their business. He said, I'm willing to pay to get in and I'll help you build the business. Well, we eventually relented. He came in and he was a great asset in building the business. The store managers that worked for us in the second store, they got their finance together and they became the franchisees of the second store. The next six or seven stores after that uh, were all franchise stores because they were people that called us, people I'd known from my advertising days Mm. who were actually very good working in areas in McDonald's and so on, and we allowed them to become franchisees. What Peter thought would take 10 years to hit the target of opening 25 stores, they were able to do it within the first six years. But this didn't happen without them working out a concept that would attract a significant footfall. And it also required them getting into a business model that would enable them to grow rapidly. Then you had a significant growth from 25 stores opening in the first six years to 300 stores four years later. What happened in the four years that grew it significantly? Well, there's two aspects. One is we added to our staff Whereas we had one person who was sourcing franchisees, sourcing sites, handling project management designs, and then one person doing operations and training, we actually added people, external people initially, who would find sites Mm -hmm. for us. We still did the interviewing of franchisee, new franchisees ourselves. We did project managing ourselves, but we actually used some external resources to help us because we then said next year we want to open 70 new stores. The Gloria Jeans franchise in Australia experienced a remarkable growth, and this got the attention of the U.S. owners who didn't see as much growth from the other international markets. They had one person looking after international, and by this stage he wasn't allowed to fly. They didn't want to spend the money, so you could imagine what the supervision was like. (laughs) So we weren't really after the international to buy it because we had to convince a bank to loan us money. We were really after the rights outright to own for Australia and New Zealand, and we would have been happy with that. But they said they would talk to us about that, but that they prefer to sell us the international business. So we went about building a plan around how to do that and presented it to banks to get money to be able to do it. When that happened, what was going through your mind? Were you excited? Did you have some reservations? It was probably in inside and, and probably outside yelling help. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> well it's a big it's a big task. It is. But in the end we're excited and we built it to 39 countries around the world. 
What was your vision for Gloria Jeans? The vision was to be the most respected and loved coffee company in Australia. And then that became the world when we bought the international rights. And did you have it in mind to keep it for a long time? Yes, we did. We thought this could continue even long after we passed on because we could pull from the day to day, many years to come and have people running it and we only come in as we needed to. Ten years into their agreement, they reached over 300 stores by 2005. This included the number of stores they inherited from buying Gloria Jeans International. It was a lot to manage, and Peter had to do a lot of traveling. So a few years after they went international, Peter was feeling like he wanted to do something different. And Peter's vision for himself and Gloria Jeans started to change. About two years into owning International, I said to my partner, I just sense God is leading me to speak more in the business world and for churches to their business people. A, it's a ministry, but secondly, it actually builds the name and the awareness of Gloria Jean's doing it. But to do that, we'll have to put on a a managing director, someone who can be here. So um, we agreed to that. And I started just, I didn't promote, but I started to get even more invitations. So I sensed it was a God thing. While Peter felt he should be speaking into the lives of business people, it became more and more difficult for Peter to have a stake at Gloria Jeans. So nearly after 20 years since Peter got into the Gloria Jeans agreement, it seemed like a door opened to sell the international business to Retail Food Group, a publicly listed company in Australia. But this decision meant Peter giving up what he had envisioned at Gloria Jeans. I think I learned on the journey it's very hard to be totally passive with a business you have all your money in. Otherwise, not everyone looks after it the way you would like it looked after. When you guys sold Gloria Jeans to Retail Food Group, how did that make you feel? I would have to say by that stage, relieved. We still had a lot of debt personally, as did our partner, so... Uh, getting selling the business enabled us to clear that debt and and then be fully focused without the hangover of a business uh, and other people running it and not being in control without that being like a noose around your neck so you could actually focus fully on the ministry and develop other materials and resources and uh, develop sort of programs that would help business people and leadership in churches around the world, as well as uh, business people in Australia. Gloria Jeans Coffees had reached 500 stores when it was sold to Retail Food Group in 2014. It was sold for what was equivalent to $150 million U.S. dollars. This was significantly more than what Peter and his partner had put in. For some people, selling a business to a bigger company for more than what was put in is a huge win. And Peter's journey to leave a normal day job to get into a business venture like Gloria Jeans was really something his family never could have imagined him doing. You are someone coming from a family that just had the mentality to pay the bills. What did your mom and dad feel about what you were doing at Gloria Jeans? They would have had no idea what I was talking about. They grew up in the mountains where in the early years where there wasn't a lot of transport. So Their area of influence or circle was very small. By the time I grew up and got to this stage of my life, they just wouldn't have concept that, you know, in their circle with their own sons or daughters could ever be involved in something like this that not only touched around Australia but the world. 
Mm. It, and, and it's not a criticism of it. It was just their sphere of influence was we're here to get by and pay bills. Growing up, did they take you guys to cafes? No, no, no. They wouldn't have had the money. And really cafes and restaurants hardly existed. A treat for us was once a year we would have fish and chips on Easter. Wow. (laughs) Even though Peter's vision for Gloria Jeans didn't pan out as he liked, Peter believes what happened has allowed him to be more focused on what he wants to do today. Today, Peter is in his early 70s and says he has not retired. He's passionate about work and about helping people of faith to succeed. Peter Irvine's website provides free resources and practical guidance on all the lessons he's learned in life. It's really interesting how he didn't grow up with the best education to get where he is, yet his faith and his calling to help others grow in business. I had to ask, what gave him such a desire to think big for his life and for others when his family upbringing didn't? And this is what he had to say. Over a number of years, you start to grow and you start to read things, you start to learn, you're in planning sessions, you see how other people have vision, you see how other people grow their lives, how other people learn. Some of that starts to rub off on you, but you've got to get it for yourself. It probably took many years to actually start realising that God had a plan and a purpose and a vision for my life, and it wasn't to just get by and pay bills, but it was to succeed and be successful so I could be a blessing to other people. So it sounds like a personal relationship with God. Yes. Allowed you to be encouraged to know you can do it, even though maybe it was absent with your own father. Yeah. And, you know, I start to realize over time that God isn't just someone and a a thing out there. You start to read verses. You know, it's a great verse. And it goes like this. It says, God says, I have a lot more to tell you things you never knew existed. This isn't a variation on the same old thing. This is new, brand new, something you'd never guess or dream up. When you hear this, you won't be able to say, I knew that all along. And I started to realize that when I spent time with him, I was starting to get these ideas and solutions to major issues. And uh, I won't be able to say I knew that because I never had any idea about that thought. Then I realized God's interested me in business in my life and he's going to give me ideas he's going to give me thoughts he's going to challenge me peter's background didn't disqualify him from aiming high and it shouldn't be a reason for you either if you already have a vision or want to pursue something more with your career or work you're actually ahead of peter when he was in his mid-40s who at that time was content with where he was as general manager at the same ad agency he worked for since he was 14 years old. It was a process for Peter to be challenged to think big and to consider the opportunities in business. Since for Peter, he wasn't raised in a privileged family or highly educated, yet he was able to be part of an incredible opportunity to build the Gloria Jeans brand in Australia and sell a profitable business. And this he credits to having a personal relationship with God, who he says is a father to him, who believes and delights in him. So no matter where you are in your career or how you feel about going to work these days, may you to be reminded of a father who delights in you. This is Grace Huang, hoping to bring you stories that could revive your work week. Thanks for listening. Just a quick note. 
At Faith Collides, we do our research on each of the valued guests on our show. And while we realize that Peter Irvine has received negative media attention and was part of a legal proceeding regarding a U.S.-based charity at some point in his career, Peter says it was a role he took for an interim period and was not part of his calling. We also found it not critical to include as part of the narrative. And we hope you can still be inspired by Peter's life story. Thanks for listening.